0: healthier, and humbler. At least, that's what the USA Today article says. Awe makes us happier, healthier, humbler. Now, we may think about awe as uh, some kind of emotion that's reserved for extraordinary events. Um, Maybe uh, summoning a mountain or seeing a baby be born or... um, some exquisite live performance. But research suggests that awe should be and can be a regular part of our normal relationship with our world. It's uh, something that we experience and then think to ourselves, a video of babies going through a tunnel. They're strapped in the back seat, you know, and when they get in the tunnel, their response is, wow, something just happened to me that I never experienced before. Uh, And awe is not just relegated to little kids. uh, Adults can have experiences of awe. For example, um, something that makes me stop and stare. Uh, a stunning piece of visual art, uh, seeing a child's first steps, uh, a stranger's unexpected kindness, or how about this the intricacies of looking at a magnolia blossom? Awe. Hmm. Awe makes us healthier. Well, we need to be struck by a sense of God's greatness, his ways, his wisdom, his power, his grace, his kindness to us. And so this week's psalm that we just heard read a couple moments ago uh, flows out of a sense of awe. It's a call. Hallelujah. We're going to look at Psalm 149, if you can turn to it. Psalm 149, we'll look at all all nine verses. It comes to us in two parts. The first part focuses on our worship, and the second part focuses on our work. We'll look at those two, and then move on and think about how that might make a difference in what we do with our time and our talents and our treasure in the week that's ahead. The Lord calls you to worship. That's right there in those first five verses. Um, now, people who've been around church, they're probably familiar with the word hallelujah. We sing it sometimes, we pray it sometimes. Imagine a pastor who's preaching and somebody says hallelujah. That would get his attention and might spur him on to even greater heights of preaching. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> But here's the question. What does hallelujah mean? It means praise the Lord. Now, interestingly, the Psalms, 146, 7, 8, 9, and 50, all begin and end with hallelujah. And uh, in fact, when we get to Psalm 150, each line begins with that word. The Hebrew songbook, then, as it were, seems to be structured. Whoever put these psalms together uh, in this order seems to be moving us in the direction of a crescendo. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Five psalms in all on the same beginning point and ending point. And it's as if the writer is saying to us, listen, when it comes to life, experiences, whether we're talking about your prayer or your worship or your suffering or the nations or the complexities of life sooner or later it all comes back to praise the lord now what's the center point of this psalm well if you look at your bible you'll see that 5 and verses 5 and 6 are not only the uh, kind of the center in terms of the development of the psalm the number of words that are there but also Key themes, verse five, let the godly exalt in glory. Let them sing to joy, uh, sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats. And then around that core center are matching ideas, the beginning of verse, not, verse one, praise the Lord, the end of verse nine, praise the Lord, and then you can kind of develop concentric circles all the way around this theme of praise. let's just think about some of the verbs that the writer uses. One and nine, and also in verse three, four times, he says hallelujah, praise the Lord. Then, verses one and five, sing. Verse two, be glad. Verse three, rejoice, Uh, make melody. Verse five, exalt. And then verse six, high pray. So, seven different verbs over nine verses, said 11 times in one way or another. Uh, can you kind of get the picture? This is about our worship. It's about specifically our worship as we give God the due that is to be brought to his before his name. Well, why? Why should we spend our time and energy giving God praise? Please look at verse 4. There are two reasons. What's the first one? The Lord takes pleasure in his people. Imagine that. You, with all your warts, foibles, failures, outright sins. The Lord takes pleasure in you today. Can you get your head around that? Talk about something that is awe-inspiring. But that's not all. The Lord adorns the humble With salvation. Think about it. There was a time when you were lost. You were dead in your sin. You didn't have any hope. And what did the Lord do? He reached out to you in your need and he drew you to himself. He gave you a place among his forever family. He gives us grace when we deserve his wrath. He showers us with prosperity and deliverance. Yeah, those are the fundamental reasons here in the psalm to give praise to the Lord. So now let's think about the implications a little bit. Yeah, you know, we, can, we can hum to ourselves, Jesus loves me, or how great thou art when we're mowing the lawn or running the vacuum cleaner or riding in the car. We can do those things. But what's the force of this psalm when it comes to praise? Well, The Hebrew songbook used by the ancient people of God was to help them as they gathered together. This is not, it it can be a solo effort, but it's not viewed primarily as a solo effort here and in these psalms. It's a togetherness kind of thing. So if you look, sing his praise in verse 1. Sing his praise in the assembly Of the godly. Then, verse 2, let Israel be glad. Verse 2, let the children of Zion rejoice. Verse 3, let them give him praise. Over and over again, down through the psalm, and it's also in verses 5 and 6, there is this collective kind of approach to the worship of God. Now, I think we can fall off the praise wagon on two sides. What's one of them? Well, overarching, the idea is we can fall off the praise wagon when, uh, when my mind is on other things. Uh, maybe I'm singing uh, in such a way that I really want you around me, Robert and Joan and Mark and Tommy uh, and Shaq. I want them to hear my great voice. That's one of the ways uh, to make this more about me in terms of promoting myself, even if it's minimal. Uh, But I can be preoccupied with myself, I think, in another way. And that is, um, maybe somebody told me when I was a kid, you know, you really have a crummy voice. And that has just haunted me all the days of my life, and so now when I come, I don't want to sing. Or maybe I grew up in a family where people didn't sing. And so I can fall off the praise wagon on this other side. I I feel embarrassed about it. I really don't want to do it. Or maybe when I came to church today, I was particularly aware of some of the aches and pains in my back, and I just don't feel like it today. Well, I can use this opportunity to give myself to the Lord in worship in a way which preoccupies me with me instead of with him. Did you ever do that? Be honest. We've all done it, right? Or uh, maybe you've had a very bad week. and That also puts you in a funk. So why give praise? Well, how do these directives then um, inform your response to the idea of worship in general and praise in particular? God reveals himself, if you just look down at the, the psalm, God reveals himself here repeatedly as the I am that I am, the unchanging one. And another word that he uses to describe himself is L, that is all-powerful. So here's the one who's from eternity past to eternity future, and here's the one who's all-powerful over all the details of life, and when it comes to whether or not I want to give him praise, I say, uh, really? I've got other things. No, that's not at all what the Lord calls us to. He's calling us in these opening verses to wholehearted the best we can give not to make ourselves look great, but to make him look great. After seminary, I uh, was an intern in New Jersey, and my supervising uh, pastor, uh, no kidding, Uh, he was the kind of guy that, as people say, could not carry a tune in a bucket. I'm not exaggerating. And back in those days, he led the entire service. He was the only one with a mic in the room. Now, how is he to manage his leadership responsibility and his musical limitations? That's the question. I'll tell you what he did. Week after week, he stood up and faithfully sang off-key to the glory of God. Faithfully, week after week, I remember it vividly. I guess it didn't occur to him to have the mic turned down. (laughs) But it did remind me of the many places in which the Lord says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. In his obvious weakness, that's what he did. And this is what worship is about. It's commanded, but it's not just commanded. It's also empowered by our very strong God. And it's a reflex reaction of awe to his extreme kindness and it moves us to give him our very best. Well that's the call of praise it's right at the beginning of those first five verses. The next section focuses not on our worship so much as on our work and you'll see it there in verses 6 and following. And the Lord really does call you. The force of these last verses is the Lord calls you to serve him. I hope you'll see that. Again, as we said before, verses 5 and 6 are the center point. They say, "Saints, joyful, uh, are joyful in glory uh, with high praises of God in their mouths." There they are. And then comes a change. Do you see the change in tone at the end of verse 6? It goes like this. And a two-edged sword in their hand.
1: We move from worship
0: to service for sure, but um, what kind of service, what is this two-edged sword thing? Well, the writer expands on the notion, whatever it is, he expands on the notion in the ensuing verses. Uh, Look at the beginning of verse seven, to execute vengeance on the heathen. And then verse eight, punishment upon the people. And then verse eight again, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. And then in verse 9, to execute upon them the judgment written. Where before have we ever seen anything like this? Okay, of course. Psalm 2, remember? You remember Psalm 2? This is the promise that God makes to his anointed one Verses 8 and 9. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What's this? God, this is what it is. God in his mercy will finally silence Rebellion and injustice in our world. He will replace pagan lawlessness and violence and abuse with glad obedience. He does that because he's kind. Now, we aren't told how he's going to do it here, but that doesn't change the fact that he promises to do it. So, now let's review again these verses. And and just think about the metaphors a little bit. Uh, Verse 6b, a two-edged sword in their hand, and then the beginning of 7, execute vengeance. End of verse 7, execute punishments. Verse 8, bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with chains, And then verse 9, execute them, upon them the judgment that's written. Now, this promise of victory in Psalm 2 is then seen as accomplished how? Through the saints. So, uh, step back just for a moment. Psalm 2, well, we've got Psalm 1 and we've got Psalm 2. Psalm 2, ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. Now we go to the end of the book of Psalms. Got Psalm 50, 150, and then Psalm 40, 149. The same theme as in verse two uh, in Psalm two. And we're called to sing, anticipating the victory that the Lord is bringing in our world, and to sing a new song. You see it right there in Psalm 149. people of God, they stand against lawlessness and injustice. Not by their fighting, but by their words and their lifestyle. They will hold a hostile world to account. By their words and their deeds, they show us what it really means to be human. In a world that seems to be falling apart at the seams, and so notice again the conclusion. There it's verse nine. This is the honor that all his saints have. What's the honor? In participating with God in the salvation of the nations, seeing all the peoples of the world. Come to bow before him. Now, how this can be, I'm not quite sure, to be honest with you. I don't know how the Lord uses his people. Exhaust, I don't have an exhaustive understanding of how he uses his people to shape a a sin-cursed world. But the Bible teaches that. There are various references in 1 Corinthians and Jude and in Revelation, where we are told that we are involved with God in this process. Changing the world. What is plain, though, in this psalm, and particularly in the second half, what is plain is this Psalm 149 uses battle language. Do you see it? In his little book, Let the Nations Be Glad, uh, John Piper makes this comment. He says, You don't really know what Is not the way that we commonly think about life, is it? Uh, we say to ourselves, "Oh, yeah, there is a, there has been some problem in Afghanistan, and now there's this conflict in, uh, in Ukraine." But but aren't these more aberrations? I mean, uh, don't we really live mostly in a peacetime setting? And that perspective is at odds with what the Bible teaches. The whole Bible, not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament. The whole Bible teaches we are in a life and death conflict. We live in the middle of it. But God is not calling Christians then because they're in a battle to take up physical arms against an enemy instead Paul says it in Second Corinthians he says our conflict our fighting is not uh, of the flesh instead what we want to do is we want to bring every thought obedient to Christ so what's the connection between this call to glad worship at the beginning and to the reality of a battle Now, at the end, well, our praise is announcing in part the victory that God has already declared he is winning. It's being realized in the faithful service of God's people in this place and that place, wherever he has assigned them in the conflict. And so there are at least two considerations that might come out of this. Here's the first one. Making the very best of the future that the Lord has given you, however long that might be. Making your very best of the future that he has given you. What do you believe God most wants to have done in the world? That's an important question, isn't it? What do you believe God most wants to have done in the world? You nail that one, then you can begin to line up the ducks in terms of how you invest yourself for him. And what falls out of that question is another one. Well, having identified what you think God most wants to have done in the world, what are you doing to see his end game realized? How are you aligning your resources to keep in step with him? How can you best invest whatever time and talent and treasure The Lord has given you to advance his kingdom in this place. And then there's another one. And it's closely related. It takes us directly to questions of lifestyle. If you choose, for example, I'm not not suggesting this. If you choose, for example, you could probably learn to live on a little more. Now that I think of it, if you choose, you could probably learn to live on a little less. 200 years ago, a man named Charles Simeon served as the pastor of Trinity Church in Cambridge, England. After 25 years, his health broke. He had to give up his work and take what became an extended leave of absence. But while he was resting, the Lord was at work in him and would be at work through him. Uh, His infirmity lasted 13 years, till he was just 60. And then it went away for no apparent reason. Nobody could decide why he got better, but he did. Simeon described it like this. Almost imperceptibly, I was renewed in strength as the woman was after she had touched the hem of our Lord's garment. He didn't see it as something miraculous. He just thought it as a strange providence that God had brought into his life. Before his breakdown, he says, this is his plan." I'll be active in ministry until I'm 60. Then I'll take a Sabbath from my labors. In other words, he was going to retire. And in his recovery, he says he seemed to hear the Lord say to him, I laid you aside because you entertained with satisfaction the thought of resting from your labor. Now that you've arrived at this very point in your life, when you had promised yourself that rest would have been determined, instead I've given you strength for me so that you can renew the labors of your life. I have doubled, tripled, quadrupled your strength that you may execute your desire on a more extended plan. A change of events. Well, Jesus faithfully fulfills Psalm 149. How so? He certainly lived a life of praise. Imagine it. From before his coming to earth, during his time on earth, as he ascends from the grave and goes back to heaven, he says, I delight like to do your will. Jesus did that part. But Jesus did something else. In his suffering and death and resurrection, he absorbed absorbed the pain and suffering that comes out of a world that's marked by rebellion. And his purpose? To set people like you and me free from our guilt and shame and free then to gladly give ourselves to his worship and service. And so by way of application, then, here are some questions to consider. Let's remember now. We're called to worship, and we're called to fight. So here's the first question. What do you believe God most wants to have done in the world? I can't answer that for you. You only can answer that. What do you believe he most wants to have done in the world? How might you better assume a wartime lifestyle in light of what God wants? That's the second question. And the third question is, what changes could you currently make so that you could more fully see the advancement of Christ's kingdom in our world? What a God we serve. He inspires awe, doesn't he? And when we're focused on awe, looking at him, it makes us happier, healthier, and certainly humbler. Here I am, Lord. Use me any way you wish. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask you to bless it to us and change us. Make us more like our Savior. Help us to stand in awe of you, we ask. Help us to live in awe, even as we live in the middle of a battle that's more than we can possibly stand. Thank you for your grace that is great. That you're, Thank you for the support you provide for us so we can live in this conflict to your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name.